We are live. Hello, friends. Welcome to today's episode of Tracy Schatz Voices for Change show, the series dedicated to putting an end to intimate partner violence. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show and Tracy's publicist. Honored to be that. And you are listening to this on Facebook Live today and then on Incandescent Radio at incandescent.tv. We are thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. David Adams, the co-founder of Emerge, which is the first counseling program in the nation for men who abuse women. Fascinating. He has led groups of abusers for 40 years and parenting education groups for almost 20. He's also one of the nation's leading experts on abusers and abuser interventions. His book, Why Do They Kill, was published in 2007. I, for one, can't wait to hear this conversation. So throwing it over to Tracy. Thanks, Hope. And thanks, uh, David, Dr. Adams, for joining us. Um, I met Dr. Adams through his book. I was uh, doing research for Finding Jen's Voice, a documentary film about intimate partner homicide. And I came across this um, pretty gruesome title called Why Do, Why Do They Kill? <laughs> and, I know, and I was trying to figure that out. Why do they kill? So I, I, read, um, I read your book, David, and, and then we were in contact shortly after that, and we ended up interviewing you for the film. And then you and I ran and crossed paths again a couple of years ago at the Conference on Crimes Against Women. And um, it's been a fun, and I'm excited to be collaborating with you on this podcast and our upcoming webinar this week. You took on a, um, a population of, um, of clients that a lot of people kind of shied away from, particularly at the time that you, that you did this. So I, it's, it's, you've got an interesting story. I kind of want to, like, what got you into here? Tell, tell us about yourself. Tell us how you ended up working in this field of intimate partner violence. Um, tell us about you. Well, sure. Well, I grew up in Vermont and uh, I grew up in a, a home um, where my father was abusive to my mother and to my, my myself and my three siblings. Um, my mother ended up dying at uh, age 42 of heart failure, uh, but we, my siblings and I all believe that uh, a very strong contributing factor to her death was my father's abusive behavior towards her uh, that included denial of medical care. Um, and so I, I was 17 when my mother died. Um, and that was in 19, uh, 1971, where really the term domestic violence hadn't even been invented yet. I mean, my mother died not knowing that she was a battered woman. Uh, I figure out she would have had to have lived another three years to have discovered that because um, her only exposure to the outside world was daytime television. And the only thing on daytime television, besides the soap operas, were the talk shows. And it would have been Phil Donahue who would have introduced my mother to domestic violence because he had battered women on his show uh, in 1974. Um, and so that would have possibly have introduced my mother to the idea that she was in an abusive relationship. And so the story I like to tell is that um, it was my grandmother 
who I adored, my mother's mother, uh, who had this key role in my development. And uh, she would come and visit twice a year. Um, and we loved it. It was like Christmas time when she visited. Um, and she would take us on all these outings that we otherwise would not be able to go on, to, you know, rent lakeside cottages for us and take us to a zoo and so forth. My father hated her. Of course. She hated my father because um, she knew how he was treating her daughter. Um, and she did this very strange thing when I was five years old, uh, which made no sense at the time, but over, over time I've, I've kind of figured it out, you know, how clever this was. What she did was she took me to my father's workplace and my father's workplace for the, was the granite quarries of Vermont. And so we walked up to the edge of a quarry and we were looking down at the bottom of this quarry and the, the workers looked like little dots at the bottom of the quarry. And she pointed to one of the dots and she said, that's your daddy down there. And I said, that's not my daddy. He's bigger than that. Um, but it ended up being this revelation because it had never occurred to me that in the larger scheme of things, my father was really quite tiny. Right. And, and, and so that was really helpful to a five-year-old because if my father was so tiny, that he didn't have to be so powerful. And I didn't have to be like him because size matters to a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so it introduced me to the idea that there was a bigger world you know, and, and my father wasn't the only influence in the world. Um, and so I kind of started this list of ways to be different from my father at age five. And the ways to be different kind of grew over the years. But the most obvious way to be different from my father was to be educated because my father was a fifth grade dropout. And so I became a very good student. I never missed a day of school, K through 12. Uh, which is very embarrassing because you have like these school assemblies where they honor you, you know, <laughs> I was the only boy four years in a row that day of school. But, you know, because I was a good student, it kind of put me under the influence of teachers and, and coaches. I was a good athlete. Um, and, and, and so I had different role models, you know, um, and, and so that really kind of saved me. My sisters always remember that I was walking around with my face in a book. I was reading up about other families. When I had girlfriends, I was practically living at their houses, uh, soaking up the energy of what I saw as normal, healthy families, right? Um, and, and, and so kind of like, unfortunately, my sisters and my brother more or less followed in my father's footsteps and, and, and kind of became like him, you know? Um, and so my kind of survival strategy, so to speak, was, was really kind of to um, have this experience of, 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 of needing to be different from my father and, and, and being influenced by other people in my life, you know, basically. Wow. Yeah. wow. I, that's a really powerful story. And I wonder, is that a story that you that you've share with um, the, the perpetrators or the, the, the men that you work with? I've never shared that. I, very occasionally, I've talked about different aspects of my father when I've wanted to illustrate uh, different aspects of parenting, for instance, or bad parenting, I should say, you know, right. but um, shaming, my father was a big shamer, for instance, so I will talk about different ways that he might have shamed me or, or, or so forth. Yeah. 
I think the the powerful takeaway that I heard, and I thought I think about my husband and how he tries to be like a, a role model for his sons and how important that is to him. I would think that it would be powerful to hear that you know. Do you want your children to want to be like you, mm-hmm. or not? Or do you want them to, to feel like they want to be the opposite of you? I mean, that's to me that would be um, might be a motivator for people. It's it's you know. I think that most parents kind of intuitively you want your you know you're kind of proud when your kids want to be like you because that feels good right well, and I did, I think my father didn't I mean my father was more of a macho man you know he was a deer hunter for instance mm-hmm. I hated the whole aspect of killing animals but he would basically require me to come along with him and and to help him to clean the deer that he'd killed and and, and so I, I, I kind of grew up feeling like I was overly sensitive in some ways. And my father definitely would throw that in my face, you know, that basically say you're too much like a girl. Uh, and, and so later on, I came to recognize that not as a liability, but as a strength, right? Because, you know, the teachers and, you know, and, and, and uh, coaches and, and, and other adults in my life began to really appreciate that I was... Um, sensitive and um, in, in a way that was insightful, right? And, and that was um, caring, you know, towards other people. And so what had I had seen as a deficit with my father and was really kind of ashamed of, you know, yeah. I, I came to see as a strength. <clears throat> how, how wonderful that you had um, those positive role models to pull you through. Um, so fast forward, you're a psychologist and you find yourself, I believe you were on the board of Transition House, is that correct? Before, before Emerge started? What was, how, did, how did you get into this field? Well, I was, uh, so Emerge was uh, established by 10 men. I was the youngest of the 10 men. There were uh, mostly, I think five of us were social workers. There was one um, taxi driver. There was one construction worker, you know. What we all had in common was that we were friends of women who had started Transition House and Casa Myrna Vesquez and, and uh, Respond, uh, three of the early uh, so-called battered women's programs of the, of the 70s. And, and, and so they had been getting calls on their hotline um, from men, and they didn't really feel it was their job to work with abusers. And yet they still feel that there should be some help available for abusers. And so they asked us as a group of men that they more they knew and more or less trusted whether we would be interested in taking this on. And, and so our first um, meeting uh, was in my apartment in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Um, I remember one of the earliest activities was um, to listen to this audio tape um, and, and because there was nothing written about domestic violence, the, the only way to learn about the issue was to talk to battered women, you know, basically. Right. And so we started inviting battered women to come and to share our, their stories with us. And, and, and so um, one of the women actually convinced her estranged um, abusive husband to send an audio tape to us. And so we sat around listening to this 90 minute audio tape. Um, and it was kind of a revelation because we, you know, he initially he was kind of apologizing because he clearly wanted her back, right? Um, 
But then he kind of went on to kind of like almost like romanticizing his abusive behavior and, and, and making excuses for his abusive behavior and rationalizing it. And, and so it, it kind of like was eye opening because we thought we were very naive. We thought, well, we'll just tell them it's wrong. You know, basically. <laughs> seems simple enough, right? <laughs> and, and, and so then it just said, oh, my God, this is really a lot more complicated because there's excuses, there's rationalizations, there's blaming the victim, you know, and, uh, and so forth. And, and so then we began to kind of construct a, uh, an intervention that really kind of gift that, that, that uh, those um, kind of points of resistance, so to speak. And uh, we're, we're going to actually have a, a webinar um, this Thursday, and I'm actually going to show our audience um, a link to, to that so people can see that. One second here. So yeah, this, this um, will be happening on Thursday afternoon, same time at 1 o'clock, and it will be on Facebook Live at Finding Jen's Voice Facebook page, but you can also register for it to get the YouTube link. Um, and we're going to have um, David on the um, webinar as well um, as his colleague Susan um, from uh, Emerge and two people from uh, the director and assistant director Sarah and Ronit from Transition House, which is um, a domestic abuse shelter and a program for for survivors of um, domestic violence that you work very closely with. So, um, you know, we're excited to kind of dive more deeply into what makes um, what makes that program work and the importance of um, your work with Transition House and and working directly with survivors. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed when I've talked to um, various organizations through the years, it seems like frequently it's like the, you know, there's the survivor camp here and the perpetrator camp there, and, and that's absolutely not how you guys work. Um, you're very survivor-focused in your, in your work. So, um, so talk to me a little bit about... Um, some of the elements of, of kind of what you've learned about um, abusers, particularly um, those who um, kill. You know, you, you did this study um, and uh, an examination of men who had been incarcerated um, for murdering their intimate partners. Talk to us a little bit about that work and what that was like for you to um, kind of go down that dark road. Well, I mean, I, I wrote the book because I was curious about what is the extreme of domestic violence. Because clearly, that's the extreme, and that's that's you know less than you know 0.2 percent of you know of of those who uh, who abuse their intimate partners. Um, you know, but but I think that there's a continuum there. You know, there's a continuum of, of severity. You know, um, um, there's a continuum of degree of possessiveness, um, and um, and so I was curious, um, and I wanted to find out directly from those who had killed their partners. And I also, as part of my book, was interviewing women who had been victims of attempted homicide too, so because I wanted them to. Um, to kind of be stand-ins for murder victims, so to speak, you know, to, to, to give their perspective. And from that, I was able to construct these five different typologies of 
killers that all have somewhat different motivations to kill their intimate partners. Some of them, for instance, are possessively jealous. And, and so there's a kind of an obvious kind of motivation there. Usually it's, it's, it's post-separation. Uh, usually post-separation, they begin to sort of step up their level of surveillance and, and monitoring. You know, some of them actually even quit their jobs or were fired from their jobs in order to have more time to stalk their victims. Um, you know, and, and so then they have murder suicides. And, 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 and so quite often there's a kind of a history of depression and despondency uh, coupled with possessive control as well. But I, but I think that you have a lot of isolation in those cases. You have the stigma of a mental illness. I mean, one of the killers I interviewed was speaking to me through a voice box because after stabbing his wife to death, he had stabbed himself in the throat oh, wow. and he lost his ability to speak at that point. Um, and, um, and, 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 so, um, and, and so that in that particular case, uh, his wife had, had waited uh, for the two children to graduate from high school before leaving him because she had spent 18 years trying to get him back into treatment, trying to get him back on medications because he was so severely depressed, you know, and then she made the plan to leave. And she was, in fact, leaving him the day that he stabbed her to death. Um, Did you find that that was um, the case with the majority of the, the men you inter interviewed, that, that the uh, murders happened after after, um, after she left? Well, either after she left or having made plans to leave, you know, um, too. So estrangement, basically, or planned estrangement, yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's why it's so important in working with abusers because most of the abusers that we work with that emerge, um, many of them have partners who have left them or are thinking about leaving them or have gotten a restraining order and, you know, and, and, and so it, it kind of behooves us to really speak to them about that loss or that pending loss in their lives. And, and so what, how is it that they can adjust to that new reality in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for instance, we like to point out that they still have their children to think about, right? Uh, which is a very strong motivating factor for many of them. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean the relationship is over even, right? Because most victims we've discovered, they don't necessarily want to end the relationship. They more want for him to change. Um, and, and, and so they're desperate, you know, um, uh, when, when they come to us. And, and, and so we have a wealth of information for them about what is it that you can do that will that can help to restore trust with your partner, right? I mean, um, what is it that you can do that can help her feel that you are somebody that she wants to be with, actually, you know? Right. It's not a liability in her life. It's not a drag on her independence, you know, that, that's, you know, that's not somebody who, um, you know, that means her harm or resents her, you know? Uh, that actually celebrates her strength, you know, that appreciates, you know, what she gives, you know, to you, to the relationship, what she gives, you know, in general, you know, and, and so that's the heartening thing for us to see, you know, for some of the men, at least the transition to a place of really respecting, you know, their partner um, and, and, um, and, and stepping up to be better role models for their children.
I've spoken with a, a lot of um, people who work with uh, victims, survivors of intimate partner violence, and there's frequently this just kind of hopelessness of um, they've just kind of written off perpetrators, you know, that they're they're narcissists. They can't be they can't be um, treated, you know, they're done, you know, um, and it's it's clear to me that given the numbers of women who are abused and how many uh, perpetrators there are, it's it's really um, a faulty thinking to think that we're going to just, you know, give up on this whole segment of the population who, you know, like you had, you know, many of whom grew up with that kind of a role model of a parent and, and didn't choose to um, emulate, you know, somebody else. Um, so I think it's I think that the work you're doing is so important, um, but there there's I mean how many programs are out there these days? I mean I know that you guys were the first. Um, I know that you do training and do a lot of duplication. Try to try to help other people duplicate the program that you've put together. Um, what's what's the prognosis? How are we doing getting there? You know, our uh, outcomes are actually fairly positive. I mean, so we participated in the study that was conditioned by our probation department. Um, and so we basically turned over the data for all of the people who uh, started the program over two years and then followed them for two years. And the results were actually quite good. I mean, so 11%, 11 percent, 11.6 percent of the program completers had reoffended. Um, okay. And twenty percent overall, you know. So those are really those are two good numbers. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so that sort of fit our. It was validating because, it, and it also sort of fit the, the what we've learned from partners. And so we do we do have very extensive contact. Um, we call it partner contact with the with the partners. Um, and you know, for the most part, what we learn is that you know it is that. Typically, over time, you know, there are a lot of people who drop out, you know, at the beginning stages, and right. so the outcomes are predictable there that they will reoffend. But those who stay with it, people who stay with the program, and, and we have quite a number of people who voluntarily extend themselves in the program, um, they do well. I mean, they develop, you know, respect for their partners, empathy. You know, we we hear it directly from the partners. We, we hear them say things like, um, you know, he shows interest in my life. He, he takes, he, he notices my feelings, you know, he notices when I'm tired, he notices when I'm anxious, you know, um, you know, um, you know, and that's sort of, previously, it was more like, what the hell's your problem? Right. Uh, I mean, kind of like, always seeing her as a source of irritation, you know, or frustration and blaming her for problems. And, and so part of what we do is how to self-manage, how to take care of your own feelings, you know, so women shouldn't be your emotional caretakers, right? Mm -hmm. And what a setup that is, right? Yeah, can't win. A partner to be responsible for your emotions, right? So if I'm unhappy, you're to blame, right? right? Um, I mean, and so, you know, we like to point out that when there's a separation in the relationship, there's an opportunity for you to learn how to manage your feelings, yeah. your anxiety, your boredom, your depression, 
you know, without making somebody else responsible, you know, so that you're in, in hopefully in doing that, you're, you're putting yourself in a much better position to have a relationship, right? <laughs> Where you can actually give something to another person rather than take, you know, take things, right? Um, what, I, I think that it's um, an incredible way of, of just thinking about um, abuse and that it's fundamentally about not taking re responsibility for your own feelings and not, uh, not really knowing how to manage your own feelings. Um, so I think that it's, it, you know, you, you paint a hopeful picture, but I also, I hear a prevention picture in there too. Um, which is how do we how do we start training boys so that they don't grow up to be men who don't know how to deal with their own feelings? Like, what what are if you if you were to tell um, I'm I'm throwing this out at you at left field. I apologize, but if you were to talk to a teacher or a parent of young boys, what would be the like the main things you would tell tell us? that we need to teach boys about managing their own feelings? What, what do they need to hear? Well, I mean, I, I think that boys are, are, you know, contemplated, you know? I mean, you know, I, I think that we kind of like tend to sort of stereotype boys, you know, and, and, and to kind of like um, kind of steer them towards um, being athletes or, you know, thinking about their careers and, and, and and we don't sort of have the same expectations that we have of girls. You know, girls are kind of expected to be caretakers, you know, um, to express interest and to show interest in other people. Boys are, are clearly able to do that. It's just that we don't expect that, right? You know, and, 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 and so I'd like to point out that the job description for men has changed, you know, over the years. It used to be that men were just expected to be financial providers, basically. Mm -hmm. And any, anything else that they gave was kind of a bonus, right? Uh, and I still think that we're still, we're struggling with that. So even though that's based on kind of an old model where the husband was working outside the home and the wife was working in the home, you know, um, I think, you know, there's still, you know, a lot of men who got, haven't gotten that memo. Right, you yeah. know that they basically kind of expect that they should be rewarded, you know, and appreciated for being a financial provider, mm -hmm. um, and they don't have expectations themselves to to be nurturers, you know. They and so as a result, they don't learn how to soothe the crying child, right? You know, they they, you know, and, and but what is kind of encouraging is that is that when men start spending dedicated time with kids, you know, post divorce, for instance. You know, it, 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 I think, motivates them, you know, to notice things that they otherwise, you know, if they've depended previously on the on the other partner, the other parent, <laughs> to soothe the crying child, right, or to remember the birthdays, you know, and schedule the appointments, all of a sudden they have to develop these new skills, right? And, uh, and so they can actually become quite good at it, right? And, and, and because, and I think it motivates them in a different way that my child needs me to notice them. Daddy. Daddy, look what I drew today. Daddy, look what I did today. You know, and and you know who could not be affected by that? 
I mean, who can not, you know, be motivated by that, right? You know, there's a responsibility to that, right? Uh, to, to help this little being feel good about themselves, right? Well, it's, it, there is a, there's a hopefulness that comes from the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, you've, a lot of people would burn out after 20 years of doing the work that you're doing, and you've done it more than, more than twice that. Um, what keeps you going? Well, I mean, two things. One is that it's it's very meaningful to me, you know. I mean, having these conversations with men that they otherwise would not have, you know, because men say that all the time. They say, oh, my God, I can't believe I've never had conversations like this before about relationships, right? Um, and, and, and so every time I do a group, I walk away feeling really fortunate to have started these conversations with men, right? Um, and so that's deeply meaningful to me. Uh, I wish my father had that experience. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, the, the, the credibility. So doing this work has given me credibility to influence the system, you know, and, and so I'm every day, you know, is a different day, but it involves training of police officers, of judges, of, of, of child welfare workers, you know, um, you know, and, and so changing how institutions respond to domestic violence, that also is very meaningful. And that keeps me going because I wouldn't be doing it if it was just working with individual abusers, because I feel like it's even more important because every abuser is surrounded by kind of uh, systems of complicity right uh, 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 and, and 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 so it's it's very very important for us to kind of work at the root causes of this problem right and, and so we do a lot of that in conjunction with transition house you know um but um so that also is meaningful to me and then just to be able to get away from it you know sometimes too you know because it is very heavy work and 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 so um you know, I've developed hobbies over the years. I've become a stand-up comedian, you know, as a kind of a side sideline. And, and so just to be able to sort of like uh, see the humor in situations. Um, Certainly a sense but, of humor yeah. goes a long way in uh, helping us uh, just get a little equilibrium in life, right? It's mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome. Um, so one, one, one more personal question. And that is, is your, is your dad, um, is your dad still living? No, my father died two years, two, um, two years ago. Um, and so I, I kind of, uh, spent five years visiting him once a month at the nursing home. Um, it was very painful because my father never really changed. He was still a bully. He was still bully my sister who took care of him and like literally sacrificed her life for him, you know? And, and so, you know, part of my survival strategy was to kind of like try to get through every visit by just distracting him. I, I, I ended up preparing all these YouTube videos of guilty dogs to tell my father. My father would be like kind of lying on his bed at this nursing home because he lost both of his legs due to diabetes. And I'd be holding my iPad up to him, you know, showing these guilty dogs, which, and then watching my my watch to count off the hour um, just to get through that visit. And then on the way back, just to celebrate, you know, that I've survived another visit, I would stop off at a restaurant, a 99 restaurant, and have exactly the same meal. Uh, barbecued turkey tips with mashed potato and and and, and <laughs> just as a kind of a 
a little self-nurturing ritual you know, for myself. So I did that for five years. Um, wow. What did he think about what you were doing? Uh, he didn't connect it. I mean, I, I, you know, my father still continued to sort of see himself as a victim, you know, um, and so that was very painful to me. Um, I, you know, I, I would have been able to have had, I would have been ha happy to have had a better relationship with him if he had kind of shown some, taken some responsibility, you know, basically. Yeah. Uh, but that was not the case for my father. But there are other men I could work with, right? <laughs> right. Right. And so you've taken that experience and helped so many men um, and women over the years. Um, I spoke with uh, one of the women who's going to be on our panel was a, a survivor of uh, domestic violence many years ago, who you worked with her husband um, for a time, and you talked to her directly, and, and she credits you with saving her life. Um, and I know how the, the work is really, really hard, but I think ultimately everybody who's in it, it really is about, it is about saving lives. And um, so thank you. Thank you for the lives you've saved and transformed and, and um, you know, the impact you're having on society, which is incredible. It's really important. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our webinar on Thursday. And I invite everybody who's watching to join us. So thanks again, David, for, for being here. Thanks, Hope. Take it oh, away. Wow. Such an amazing conversation, David. I feel it in my heart. Um, I'm sorry for that experience you had, but how amazing that you turned it around like this. So we're all grateful for that. Um, I think any child who's had a challenging father can relate a little bit to what you were saying. Um, but that you're changing men and, you know, as the mother of a son and, you know, I'm grateful for that just so that they can open up and be brave. Um, I think that that's what this is all about. Just that courage to stand up and take control of your life in whatever way that is necessary. So we're going to, what I would love to do is share the five types of killers on this in the liner notes. And of course, we'll link to this fantastic webinar that's coming up on Thursday, July 29th. All of Tracy's webinars are fantastic and all of her guests are so illuminating. So thank you, David Adams. Thank you, amazing Tracy Schott. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs with Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV. We will bring you another episode in a couple of weeks. Tell, Tracy, tell us about our upcoming guests in August. Janice Farabee is our next guest and she is a fellow social worker who has um, created programs for uh, young uh, black women and girls to um, help them with their self-esteem. She uh, at one point worked in fashion, worked for Seventeen Magazine, and really started to understand how um, our societal uh, views of black women and girls was really impacting their self-esteem in so many negative ways. So she's going to be joining us, telling us more about her journey and the work that she's been doing. So looking forward to having Janice with us. Absolutely. And the other guests that we will have on this show and others. So thank you again, everybody. We'll see you soon on the next episode of Voices for Change.tv. Bye.